And now hear God's holy word from Ephesians chapter 6, continuing our study in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we ask you to fill us with your spirit now as we encounter your word. We ask that your words might penetrate our hearts, might encourage and convict and exhort and admonish and comfort and do all the things that you intend for it to do today. Help me to be a capable messenger of your word. Untie my tongue and help me to articulate these things clearly so that we all might receive uh, your holy wisdom and your word for us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I don't think anybody would accuse me of making an overstatement if I were to say that masculinity is dying in the West. The particular gifts and strengths of maleness have never been more unpopular, have never been more maligned, have never been more mistrusted than they are today. As, as the extremists on the, on the far reaches of, of our culture uh, blame all men throughout all history for all the problems in the modern world, as they blame all men for all problems, the, those in the soft middle and the men, especially in the soft middle, feel the need to apologize for being male, apologize for their very existence and identity. One political leader in New Zealand recently said that very thing. He said, I am sorry for being a man. And he did that in response as, as kind of an overcorrection, not kind of a real overcorrection, to the very real, present, wicked problem of domestic violence perpetrated by men and the plague of sexual harassment that's come out in politics and sports and entertainment that's been in the headlines over the past year. But his response to that was, I'm sorry for being a man. Masculinity is dying when we overreact to the bullies and the frat boys and the tyrants and the perverts who have no self-discipline who think that being a man means being the nastiest, most disgusting, most horrible expression of a human being possible. That's masculinity by their definition. Using their size and strength and station to shame or to disrespect or to make other people feel worthless, to abuse others mentally, emotionally, physically, that's not real masculinity. That's not, certainly not biblical manhood. That's pagan, it must be rebuked, it must be called out, it must be exposed. However, we don't solve that problem by making everyone women, by turning men into women. Masculinity is dying in the West as men go headlong into feminine self-expression. I mean, man buns? 
Really? Is that, is that a thing? Is that really a thing? Are guys really wearing eyeliner, man purses? Are you serious? Are you kidding me? Obsession with fashion and appearance is this complete rebellion against what God has set, what's been the male standard of, of Western civilization. By Western civilization, I'm, I mean Christendom. Can you imagine John Wayne or Winston Churchill going to the mall to pick out, you know, moisturizer? Is that, is that something? Would, would John Knox or, or David Crockett, would they wear skinny jeans with flip-flops? Are, our everything has been, our, our entire sense of manhood has been evacuated completely. There's a general softness, a laziness, a passivity to males in our generation, which betrays a weakness of character and a gross immaturity. We act like and we dress like toddlers, not men. In just about every area of the job market, except for trades, except for physical labor, in every other area of the job market, women are advancing and men are falling way behind. One report states that men are the new minority on college campuses. Fewer and fewer men are enrolling in college on average, and, and even fewer are actually graduating, actually making it all the way, because young men are weakened and all of their potential is sapped by the two fangs that Satan has got into you, young men, of, of video games and internet pornography. Those two things, those two hooks are in you, and they're sapping you of all energy and of real biblical masculinity. So it's got you checked out and completely useless. Here's a comedian, Michael Ian Black, who's no conservative, uh, but he had some pretty biting commentary on this. He says, and this is his quote, he uses the word gender where I think he should use the word sex, but I won't make a big deal out of that. But here's his quote. The past 50 years have redefined what it means to be female in America. Girls today are told that they can do anything, be anyone, and they've absorbed the message. They're outperforming boys in school at every level. But it isn't just about performance. To be a girl today is to be the beneficiary of decades of conversation about the complexities of womanhood in its many forms and expressions. Boys, though, have been left behind. No commensurate movement has emerged to help them navigate toward a full expression of their gender. It's no longer enough to be a man. We no longer even know what that means. That's his quote, and he's right. And every attempt to define what it means to be a man Every attempt at that is now a redefinition. It's heading in the wrong direction. That to be a man today is to be more domesticated, more in touch with his femininity, more receptive to the browbeating of the social justice warriors. Masculinity is under attack, but it's always been under attack. Satan, Satan hates nothing more than men who are strong, mature, confident, and faithful in their roles as men as they have been created. Satan has always, has always appreciated weak, passive, effeminate men, or if he can't have those, then at least he'll have these block-headed bullies who abuse their strength and their position. In short, Satan either wants Adam or he wants Cain. He either wants the passive man who pushes his wife out front or he wants Cain, the bully and the murderer. Either way, just so long as we don't have good men to lead us, good men to look up to, good men to show us what it means to be like Jesus. 
Masculinity is dying indeed because we have forgotten that masculinity has always been about dying. Masculinity is about dying. A long time ago, Peter Lightheart said this about marriage. He said, we're, we're hearing all these, these horror uh, predictions and these, these prophecies that marriage is dying. And he said, well, yeah, marriage is dying because we've forgotten that marriage is about dying. Well, I want to spin that just a little bit and say that about masculinity too. We've forgotten that masculinity is about dying. So of course it's dying. The role of man, the calling of man, the duty of man preeminently is to die. Because Jesus is the man. Jesus is the model of manhood. Jesus is the prototype of masculinity. And Jesus is the man whose entire life, whose entire purpose was to die. He poured out himself for his people and for the world. Now, passive Adam-like men don't do that. Uh, men who follow Adam as their example of masculinity push their wives out front, who, who, who ask others to take the fall for them. Abusive Cain-like men who find, who find their expression of masculinity in, 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 in imitating Cain, they don't do that either. They don't die themselves. They kill others. They destroy others. They turn others into sacrifices before they offer themselves, before they accept death, death themselves. So Jesus is the true man. Jesus is the real man because he offers himself. If that makes you feel a little bit queasy, a little bit nervous, or if that makes you cringe a little bit when I say Jesus is the model of masculinity, if you think, no, wait a minute, Jesus, really? I mean, maybe if you said Samson, I could get behind you. Or maybe, you know, maybe David on a good day, the, the bear killing David, the giant killing David. I'm not sure about the harp playing David, right? Uh, if, if I say Jesus is the model of masculinity and any part of you cringes at that, your, your image of Jesus has been more influenced by bad art at the Christian bookstore and by Sunday school literature than it has by the Bible. Jesus isn't the golden-haired, doe-eyed, you know, Caucasian that, that's in the painting in your grandmother's foyer. That's not <laughs> Jesus. Jesus was the son of a carpenter. Jesus was a man that fishermen dropped their nets to follow. Hard men, tough men respected Jesus. Centurions and pub owners, tax collectors and farmers loved Jesus and looked up to him because he had a kind of hardness to him. He had a, a kind of toughness and a kind of tenacity and a kind of resolve. Uh, you know, you, you can't you imagine the guy with the, with the man bun and the eyeliner. The fishermen wouldn't have dropped their nets to follow that guy. The guy in your grandmother's foyer, the, the, the fishermen wouldn't have dropped their nets. The centurion wouldn't have given him 10 minutes. But these men loved Jesus and they respected Jesus because he was, in fact, the very model of godly masculinity. Jesus is the man. Jesus is the model of masculinity that, that Paul points to when he tells husbands how to love their wives. And, and when he talks about marriage in his letter to the Ephesians, as we've been studying this, this book, Paul points us to Jesus as the model of masculinity. Remember where we are in Paul's train of thought as we've been studying and working through this letter all summer. Uh, we're, we're following, and I think what, 
what Paul's doing is in his train of thought, he's following the events at Mount Sinai. So just as Moses delivers God's law, so Paul has walked us through God's law. And there are several parallels that I've shown you that as God ordered Israel's society at Sinai, now Paul is in the section of ordering society, wives and husbands, parents and children, masters and servants, in the ordering of, of, of society, the hierarchy of society. So, so we get this and God orders Israel's society. And now Paul gives us this order for our relationships because God is a God of order. God is not a God of anarchy. For there to be order, there has to be responsibility and there has to be authority and there has to be a clearly defined structure. We have to be able to answer the question, who's in charge here? Who's responsible here? Who does what? And Paul gives us that. So last week we read about the duties and the responsibilities of wives as, as Paul appealed to creation and redemption. And everything I say this week builds upon what we saw and read last week. So if you didn't hear or, or weren't around for last week, go back and listen to that because that puts everything into context of what I'm going to say this week. Everything I say here builds upon what we studied last week. And this whole section is predicated upon the first statement in verse 21 that we submit to one another in the fear of God. Everything that follows, husbands and wives, children and parents, uh, masters and servants, everything that follows uh, is, is all predicated upon this, that we subject ourselves to each other in the fear of God. So, so Paul reminds us, and, and we spent a lot of time on that, and then he goes into his instruction to wives first. Why does he start with wives? Remember, we saw because all of humanity is in a position of, of submission to God. The church is in submission to Jesus. So what's expected of wives is expected of everyone. This is primary. Everyone must learn submission. Everyone must learn obedience. If you never learn submission, if you never learn how to follow wise direction, if you never learn how to take godly correction, then you will never be qualified for leadership in any capacity. That's where Adam failed in the garden, right? He failed to obey and thus he uh, uh, abdicated his crown uh, and, and lost everything because he failed to obey. Even Jesus submitted himself to God's law and Hebrews 5.8 says Jesus learned obedience. So if Jesus needs to learn obedience and learn submission, all of us then must learn how to submit. All of us have to learn how to obey and follow directions. Learning submission is good for us. It trains us to be sensitive to the people and, and to the abilities of those under us. All of us at some point in our life are put in a position of authority over other people. And being people who have learned how to submit and how to obey makes us better leaders because we understand what it's like to be in that position. Only by being in a position of subjection yourself do you understand the limitations and the needs of being a servant. If you've never been under authority, then you don't know what it's like to receive commands and how frightening that can be if the expectations are not clear or if the expectations are always changing or if, or if the expectations are presented in a hateful way or a spiteful way. That's terrifying when you're in a position of subjection to someone who misuses their authority. So we learn how to submit and we learn how to be in that position so that we can turn around and do it in a faithful way, in a godly way. It's possible you've worked at some point in your life in a family-owned business, some of you have, 
where in a family-owned business, sometimes when there's a wise, um, I'm sorry, when there's a very foolish father who's running a family-owned business, sometimes he will promote his sons right up to executive positions without ever making them sweep a floor or without ever making them work the dirty jobs or the grimy jobs. They just get promoted straight up. And because they never learn how to do the dirty work, because they've never had to submit to somebody else, they now make terrible managers. They run off all the good employees and they run the business into the ground. When I was, uh, when I was still in seminary um, and we were just trying to make ends meet, and we weren't married yet, uh, but Sarah and I were engaged. She took a job at a Caterpillar factory. You know Caterpillar, Cat, they make the big earth moving equipment and the big tractors. And my wife took a job at the Caterpillar factory uh, in an office position, but they had a policy that everyone, everyone from the executive, from the top executive on down to the maintenance man, everyone had to start out on the floor of the plant doing the dirtiest, nastiest job in the whole place. Everybody had to start there doing that dirty job for a few weeks and, and before they could move on to something else. And so she had to, she had to do that to get to, the, get to the office job that she was hired for. If you've never spent a long time doing the dirty work, then you don't know how long it takes. So that's so wise and that's, that's a really good, I think that's a good policy that they had. Because if you've never done the dirty work, you don't know what it takes out of a person to do it. You don't know what it's like to meet a def- difficult deadline or, or meet a quota. So that those who are setting the quotas and those who are, are setting the policies and making the policies need to live under those policies themselves. The point is, those who make the best leaders understand the people who serve them and have spent time in an inferior position. It's critical for our development as human beings that we spend time under submission and under authority. So that's why Paul started off with wives, because we all start in a place of submission. And then after giving us just a couple of sentences for wives, he saves the real heavy-duty language for husbands, because husbands are the head of their wives. Now, all men are not the source of all the problems in the world, but primary responsibility for all the troubles in the world and primary responsibility uh, for all the problems in the family are with men, are with husbands. You see, there's a difference between culpability and responsibility. We might not be the source of the trouble, but we are responsible for for. Uh, the troubles and the problems of the world and of our families. In pagan religions and in in distorted forms of Christianity, women are thought to be uh, the problem and the source of evil all the time. So so in pagan religions and in in distorted forms of Christianity, women are dangerous. They're scary. You've got to cover them up from head to toe. You've got to keep them illiterate. They can't drive. They, They have to stay in bondage because women are less than human in those systems and they're only, uh, they're only trouble. So you gotta, you gotta keep them off and, and, and out of the way and off to the side. But the Bible repeatedly speaks against that. Eve was deceived in the garden, but Adam is the problem in the garden, right? It's, it's Adam's failure, it's Adam's fall. There is a double standard. Men are doubly responsible for the problems in the world. And so Paul spends more than twice the time on men that he spends on women. So verse 25, we, we read, "'Husbands, love your wives, "'just as Christ also loved the church "'and gave himself for her.'" The word that summarizes a wife's duty to her husband that Paul gave us, the word that summarizes her duty is submit. The word that summarizes a husband's duty to his wife is love. 
You see, what summarizes the words, uh, the, the husband's duty is not make her submit, right? Her duty is to respect and, uh, and submit. His duty is not to make her. His duty is to love. That is the summary of his responsibility. Now, we might think that goes without saying. Oh, husbands love your wives. Oh, sure. Yeah, man, you're supposed to love your wife. But that would have been incredibly revolutionary and earth-shattering to the first century pagan mind. As you saw last week, I went kind of through the history of how uh, Greeks and Jews and Romans viewed women when all this was, when this was being written. And Paul was speaking into this culture. The Greeks didn't love their wives. The Romans did not love their wives. Wives were an accessory. They were a possession. They were a trophy at best. But love? What are you talking about? I, 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 I get love other places, but I don't get love uh, from my wife, and I don't have love for my wife. That was just the attitude in the first century pagan world. See, you and I have had the benefit of several centuries of romantic literature that makes Christian masculine love for a woman ordinary. It makes it very, uh, very, you know, commonplace for us. Uh, and in fact, you know, even in that, we've lost sense of, of that word love. It's not simply an expression of affection, though affection is important. It's not simply a pursuit of a holy satisfaction of his own physical needs, though that is a critical component. But love is defined centrally in terms of how Jesus loves his church. And how does Jesus love his church? How does Jesus love his bride? In short, when, when we hear, husbands love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, in short, husbands, you must crucify yourself for your wife. What is required of husbands is nothing less than complete self-abandoning love. He gives his body to work for her. He gives his intellect, his attention to interact with her. He gives his time to be her companion. And, and all of this that we say about husbands and wives is also true of Jesus in the church. Remember, we don't say anything about husbands and wives that's not also true of Jesus in the church. So Jesus doesn't win his bride by knocking her head in the head with a club and dragging her off by her hair, kicking and screaming. That's not how he wins her. She becomes the bride of Christ. The church becomes the bride of Christ by him giving himself totally in every way for her to adorn her and keep her, to protect and provide for her. Now, I say this and you're thinking, well, come on, give me a to-do list. I want to know, know a list of things that I need to do in order to crucify myself for my wife, to give myself for my wife. I'll tell you what, I can't give you that list. You've got to study your wife. You have to know her. You have to understand her and figure out what she needs. I could tell you, you know what, guys, take over the laundry. That'd be the biggest thing. That'd be the blessing that your wife needs, but your wife may not want you to do the laundry. Maybe she's really kind of happy doing that. And, and there's something else. There's something else that she needs you to do that's completely different. Uh, I can't give you a list. What I can tell you is that just as we saw last week through the Proverbs, women might have a temptation toward contentiousness. Men have a temptation toward abdication of responsibility. Here's what we must stop doing, and that is abdicating our responsibility for the problems in our marriages and in our homes. We blame our wives for all of our problems, and we're just following Adam. We're just doing what Adam did. 
Eve was deceived by the serpent, but, but, but Adam knew what he was doing, and he turned around and tried to put all the blame on Eve. And we have a tendency to do that. We put our wives out front, and we hide behind them before God and say, God, it's really, she's putting me in this position. She's messing up in such a way that I don't have any choice to do, but, but what's going on? Uh, we hide behind them before God when Jesus does the opposite. What does Jesus do when it comes to the church? Does Jesus put the church out front and hide, hide behind her before God? Or does Jesus stand before the Father in front of the church and he says, I've got this. I'm covering her with my blood, with my sacrifice, with my obedience. I'm covering her with my very self. I give myself. Jesus takes responsibility for his bride. And that's what it means in part to crucify yourself. And there's a goal in view. When Jesus gives himself for his bride, he has an end in mind. Verse 26, that he might sanctify her and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. With respect to the church, the work of Jesus is to make her holy. And he does this. He makes her holy by ministering to her. He cleanses her by water and by the word. Some, some translations say washing of water and the word. And, and that, there may be a reference to baptism there. Certainly word and sacrament is how he makes his church holy. Or it may be a direct statement about the cleansing properties of the word of Christ. He speaks to her and she is cleansed. She is made whole by his words. His words to his bride give her life and they build her up. Jesus's words to his bride don't destroy her or demean her or tear her apart. He doesn't pick her apart or diminish her view of herself. When he speaks to her, it's like a shower of blessing. It's cleansing and refreshing. And when Jesus speaks to his bride, it irons out her wrinkles. It clears up her spots. She becomes glorious, holy, and without blemish. Jesus does not crush his bride. He sacrifices everything to serve her in order that she can become everything that God made her to be in the fullness of her glory. In the same way, we husbands must never use our position to crush or stifle our wives or frustrate them from being the woman that God created them to be. If a man loves his wife the way that Jesus loves his bride, his love for her will lead him to give himself for her in a way that she may develop her potential and become more completely herself, revealing more and more glory. Well, there's always a dance here. It always, this is a two-way street. This takes two partners, always. So wives, you must not spitefully rebel or resist against your husband's efforts to glorify you. If, you're, if your husband gets a $500 bonus at work and, he's, and he hands it right over to you and he says, I want you to go to the mall and I want you to refresh your wardrobe and I want you to do whatever you need to, to just, you know, freshen up and spend it on yourself because I want to bless you and I want to glorify you. If the refrigerator is full of groceries and all the bills are paid, you take that money to the mall 
and you do what he asked you to do. You do it. That's him doing what Jesus does for his church. He's, he's not spending it on himself. He's not buying a new gun. He's not buying new golf clubs. He's wanting to glorify you. He's wanting to bless you. He wants to present you spotless. You see, maybe you have a hard time receiving that kind of attention, ladies. Or you resist being served in that or many ways. You resist being served. But remember what Jesus said to Peter when Jesus was washing Peter's feet uh, or wanted to. And Peter said, no, 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 Lord, I've got, to, I've got to wash your feet. And Jesus said, you know what? You have to allow yourself to be served, Peter. If you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part in me. Ladies, you must allow yourself to be served by your husbands. This, this is a two-way street. So I could tell guys all day long, man, you've got to glorify your wife. You've got to, you've got to really uh, pour out blessing on her. But you could be sitting there, ladies, resisting and, and short-circuiting and rebuffing everything, stiff-arming everything that he's trying to do. And, and it's going to be of no avail. It's got to be two ways. So verse 28, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. And we got to think about that for a minute because it, it sounds like Paul is speaking ironically here. The, is it true that no one ever hates their own flesh? Is that, is that objectively true? No one ever hates his own flesh. Well, I think we can think of examples of people who hate their own flesh, right? So, so it looks like Paul is speaking ironically. The fact is, unbelievers and heathens do hate their own flesh. Remember the prophets of Baal who cut themselves before the altar? Uh, remember Proverbs 8 says this, Whoever finds wisdom finds life and obtains favor from Yahweh. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. Do unregenerate people love their own flesh? Well, no, they, they don't. They hate themselves and they act against their own best interests. Unbelieving men don't take care of themselves and they treat their women worse than they treat themselves, either by neglect, by passive Adam-like neglect, or by Cain-like uh, aggression and, and bullying and abuse. So, so Paul says this in a way that makes us stop and think. And, and Paul says, nobody ever hates his own flesh. And we raise an objection and say, well, I know people who hate their own bodies. And, and, and then we answer it and say, oh, yeah. What kind of person hates his own flesh? The regenerate man is grateful to God and does love his own life. He loves his own existence. He loves his own body that God gave him. And Jesus even says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. If we love our neighbor like we love ourselves, then, then we'll love our wives even more than we love ourselves. To the extent that you ignore or put down your wife, you, you hurt yourself. To the extent that you provide for your wife, you provide for yourself. So this requires a, a, a kind of godly view of yourself to be able to love your neighbor or to be able to love your wife. And, and, he, and he builds on this in verse 30. He says, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. So Paul's always crossing back and forth between Jesus and his bride and men and their wives. We, people of God, church, we are one flesh with Jesus. We are his body. So close is our union with him that we're called the body of Christ. Jesus doesn't hate his body. To hate his body is to hate his bride. So in the same way, regenerate men, uh, believing men, godly men, don't hate themselves. Their love for their own lives is their love for their wives because they are one flesh. And their love for their wives is their love for themselves. 
So we don't ever have to get knotted up about, about this um, separating our, our self-fulfillment or our own pleasure from love for our wives. If, if you do something for your wives, do you expect something back? Well, I mean, you hope that there would be affection and thanks and, and, and graciousness in return. And certainly wives, you think the same way. If I do this for him, I expect love and affection in return. And so we're always acting in our own best interests as we love each other. And it's all, it's all kind of wadded up together. We love, our, we love our spouses because we love ourselves. And we love ourselves because we love our, our spouses. And Jesus is, is the same. We are his flesh and his bones. He loves us and we're his and, and he's ours. So verse 31, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Paul's going back to creation again. He's quoting from Genesis right there. Remember that while Paul is preaching here, what he's writing to us about is not chauvinism. Again, this is not chauvinism, this is creationism. If you believe Genesis, you believe everything that Paul says here. If you understand that God has ordered society in a particular way, and he has ordered the family, he created the family, and he put these roles together intentionally, if you believe that, then you understand that what Paul is writing about is not chauvinism, it's creationism. And from the very start, God's commission to Adam was that throughout the generations, that men would leave their homes, go out, and be joined to their wives. Men must leave their fathers and mothers, go start brand new families. Now this flies right in the face of patriarchalism. There are, no, there are to be no grandfathers ruling over the next generations. In, in pagan civilizations, you have all these forms of patriarchy, one or the other, for some form, and this would have been one of the problems they faced in Ephesus. No matter, no matter what you try to do, granddad is controlling everything, where you work, where you live, and what you do, he's controlling everything. But this is not God's design. So he calls Abraham to leave his home. Isaac leaves, Jacob leaves, and what does Jacob find? He finds Laban. And what does Laban try to do? He's trying to control everything. He's controlling his daughters. He's trying to control the grandchildren, uh, controlling uh, Jacob's work. And, and, and it's difficult for Jacob to extract himself from that, but eventually does because this is God's design. Because God has ordered that families be recreated in each generation. We still have relationships with mom and dad. We still have relationships with grandma and granddad, but all those go to the background. If you do what God says, there can be no clan structure. There can be no patriarchal society, which is why we don't build the church off of family structures. The church is the only eternal family. Our natural families are not eternal. Our natural families are recreated every generation. So, so we have to keep that distinction. Now, this is also true. Again, everything we say of husbands and wives, we say of Jesus and the church. When Jesus comes and he marries the church, we are called to leave the house of Adam and Eve and we're joined to Christ. We move to his house. We become one flesh with him by eating and drinking with him. So then husbands and wives become one flesh. And God provides that covenant union, just as every covenant has a sacrament, God provides husbands and wives with a, with a sacrament by which we grow closer and closer and more and more intimate to each other and delight in each other. This is, this is the only sexual union that God approves of. And again, he designed it. He, de he designed our bodies. He made us. And there's no, there's no shame. There's only life and joy and rest in following his created order. Verse 33. 
he closes with this. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, now he addresses the husband first. He started off by addressing the wife first. Now he flips it around and he addresses the husband first. And what he addresses is not the husband's authority over his wife, but his love for her. His authority is expressed not in demanding respect, not in demanding honor. His authority is expressed not in power or dominion or oppression, but in loving responsibility. Now, we all know the kind of guy who's, you know, I'm in charge of my house. I'm, I'm the king of the castle. I do what, I, I say what needs to be done and it gets done every time. And if, it, and if it doesn't get done, well, then there's going to be trouble. I mean, that's, I rule my house. I'm the king of the castle. We know that guy. We know that demanding guy who puts out commands and expects perfect obedience. And he's in fact suppressing his wife and children. They're miserable. They're suffocated by this. And we've seen that modeled before. We, we know what that looks like. But that's not what Paul is encouraging because that's not what Jesus does. A man's leadership certainly requires him to take initiative. You know how Jesus took initiative to come woo and win his bride? To give himself for her? Yes. But biblical headship is revealed in sacrifice and self-giving for the sake of the beloved. If there's any power that a man has, and he certainly does have power, it's power to care, not to crush, to serve, not to dominate, to fulfill his wife's flowering and growing into the woman God created her to be, not to frustrate her or to destroy her. This opens up a woman to respect her husband. Respect, which is critical, but that's her responsibility. It's not his responsibility to demand it or force her into subjugation so that in some way she kind of squeaks out, you know, I respect you because uh, she's been uh, obliterated. The, the most critical theological heading for informing and shaping our marriages the most, the most important theological data point that's critical for us is the atonement. Understand the atonement. Understand salvation. Understand the gospel. Get it in your head and your heart and get it in your life, what Jesus does for the church, and then you understand marriage. And, and then you understand our attending duties to each other. Understand what Jesus does for his wife, what the church does for Jesus. Understand that and you understand marriage. The atonement is God's way of processing sin. It's the only effective way of processing sin. It's the only effective way of dealing with it and putting it away. Because in marriage, uh, and why this is so essential, understanding the atonement is because in marriage, offense abounds. Problems and difficulties and misunderstandings and disagreements abound. It happens. We live with it. We rub each other the wrong way all the time. It, it, it just happens. And our sinful tendency is to not deal with it in a biblical way. Our sinful tendency is to nurse bitterness and resentment. We get real spiteful toward each other. We store up grievances and we store up offenses. And then we get these crazy thoughts in our heads and we, we, start, we start developing real weird behaviors toward each other. You, you would never treat any other human being in the world the way you treat your wife. You'd never treat any other person that way at your worst. Women, you'd never treat anybody the way you treat your husbands when you're at your worst. 
But we cultivate all these strange pathologies and we learn all these bad habits, these bad ways of dealing with each other and bad ways of dealing with sin and offense. So then we start avoiding each other and we start avoiding the things that we're called to do, effectively defrauding our spouses from the gifts of being married. God gave husbands and wives to each other to be a blessing to each other, to be a joy to each other, to be rest and sweetness and life and glory. And when we selfishly, hatefully withdraw, we deprive each other of the things that God intended for our spouses to have in giving us to them. So what's called for is aggressive, sacrificial behavior. That means that pile of offenses, you ever watch that terrible show, Hoarders? Or people just pile this stuff up in their house. What are you saving pizza boxes for? Do you really need those old Mountain Dew cans? What's going on? What do you need this stuff for? And the house becomes so crowded, you gotta, you gotta walk sideways through the rooms. And they don't even have a place to sit down. There's not even place to, a place to rest, a place to lay down at night. Because it's so full of garbage. It's just crowded with complete garbage and refuse and detritus. And that's what our marriages become like. Your house may be immaculate, your house may be clean, but your house might as well be full of garbage because of all the offenses and the, and the, and the hurts and the complaints that you've never dealt with the right way. An aggressive, sacrificial living requires you to take kerosene and a match and deal with all that. Deal with all it by just setting it on fire and releasing your right to be hurt, releasing your right to be bitter over those things, to deal with it in an atoning way, to present it before God, to make repentance and, and, and follow the Matthew 18 drill if you have to. If there are things you can't let go, then follow Matthew 18 and, and, and set fire to the pile of offenses and all the hurts and the wounds and say, I'm going to lay my life down for you now. Now, men, I say aggressive sacrificial behavior. I know what some of you are thinking. You're going to like block out next weekend and you're going to scurry around the house doing a bunch of stuff for a whole weekend and try to earn brownie points. And then when you don't get the response that you're looking for, you think she's going to fall at your feet, you know, with a cold beer and a cigar. And she's going to say, oh, my Lord and master, what can I do for you? Because you have just shown yourself worthy in so many ways. You've wiped so many noses and you've done so much dirty dishes this week. You've, you've really, you built the deck this weekend. I've, I've been asking you to do that and you've done that. And, and, and then and you scurry around all weekend and then you don't get that response. That doesn't come and you give up and say, see, See, that's why I don't try anything. That's why I don't do it. I don't get the response I'm looking for. See? No, that's not, what I'm, that's not what we're talking about. That's not what I'm asking you to do. What we must uh, uh, commit ourselves to is a lifelong habit of daily crucifying ourselves, investing ourselves in the life of our spouse to learn her, to study her, to know her needs and wants and her fears. Again, it's a dance. Wives, your husband starts laying himself down for you. You've got to open up. You've got to light a match to your hurts and fears and, and light a match to your bitterness as well. You have to open up yourself to his pursuit of you. You have to be vulnerable and you must be patient as he learns and as he puts in the effort. See, this is, these things become so complicated because none of this comes natural and very few of us have good examples. All of this has to be learned. None of us are born this way. And, and where are the great examples? 
<laughs> marriage is such a joke in our society that we need a generation of examples that we can point the world to. These things are complicated, but they need to be prayed over together and ask God to give us a good attitude and ask God to give us the ability to put away the garbage that we've let pile up and crowd our lives. Let me ask that first question again. Is masculinity dying? You bet it is. Masculinity is dying. Why? Because we forgot that masculinity is dying. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to give us grace as husbands and wives to live together as heirs of the promise, as people you have blessed beyond belief, beyond imagination. You've given us a companion. You've given us a husband. You've given us a wife. You've given us children. Father, we praise you and give you thanks for these incredible, immense blessings. Uh, cause us to repent for the way that we've acted in ingratitude for these incredible blessings that you've given us, the way that we have acted hatefully or spitefully. We've nursed bitterness. Father, uh, let your words continue to penetrate our hearts and our minds and our lives and, and give us uh, men, make us men, who, who die for our wives, who give ourselves, who crucify ourselves for our wives and our families. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.